Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead. I am Len. I am your host this week. I am joined by our good friend, Rowan Kaiser. <laughs> and by uh, Aftermath's Luke Plunkett. Hey, everybody. Is that the first? That might be the first time that you've been on since since the new site launched. Yeah, it is. That's that's why I've been. That's why I have not been on for a while. <laughs> Turns out it's a lot of work putting a website together. Um, but yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah. Do you want to tell people a little bit about what's going on with you guys now? Yeah. Um, thank you, David yes. Game Journalism and all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very funny. Um, we <laughs> um, so earlier this year, a, a bunch of uh, well, myself and a bunch of former ex-Kotaku, ex-Washington Post, ex-Vice journalists uh, got together and thought we were kind of tired of working for shitty media company owners <laughs> and thought we would try and be our own shitty media company owners and start our own media company and website. And so, yeah, uh, about five weeks ago, we launched Aftermath.site, which is a primarily video games-based uh, website that, yeah, it's just a bunch of us writing blogs about games and other stuff we're into and it's a subscription-based website so it's people hopefully slide us a few bucks a month to um keep the site running and and pay us to keep writing the blogs and yeah it's been doing going really well so far so um i am excited that it's now up and running and that i have time to actually go back to playing video games and coming on podcasts like this instead of learning about like tax laws and business registration stuff that <laughs> I never want to have to deal with ever again. Oh, and, and being subscription funded has the benefit that like your headlines look like they were written by humans. They all written, kinds of- written, written and edited by humans. It goes through <laughs> multiple sets of human only hands. So, um, yeah. yeah I you hope say human only, that. but how many people wear glasses? Um, that's the, the mechanical, whether, whether lenses are mechanical or assistive in nature, I think can be a debate for another day. I think I'm going to let them slide and say it's, it's human adjacent. And so it's okay. I, yeah. You would say that about cyborg. I, I, mean, um, I feel like I'm playing the battles of galactic board game. Now we're trying to work out which one, which one of us is the silent. That's a very silent thing to say that glasses are very human. Also, you know, the, you're you're really you're neglecting, uh, you know, the beavers and the lizards and stuff. If it's the, only yeah. humans looking at these, and the hearts, yeah, the, yes. nice the global resolve is going down. Yeah. Um, so we're here to do another one of those loop back around on a game that we talked about during early access. I actually didn't play it during early access, so all of my experience with it has been uh, within the last month. Uh, but it is, of course, against the storm. And um, Rowan, why don't you give us the rundown on what this is for people who maybe don't remember that episode or have not listened to it? So against the storm is basically a roguelike city builder. It's a game that takes a lot of cues from like a Slay the Spire or some other kind of run based game uh, where you know how the best part of the city builder is like the first hour or two when you're laying down your your roads and you're figuring out the most efficient way to put all your buildings together and all that? Well, what if that was the entire game and you just did that part over and over? And that's what it gets the storm is tapping into. It's, it's trying to 
keep the keep the building of the city part of the game fresh because you are consistently doing new parts of this. You're you're re-exploring, you're re re-putting together your population and all that. Uh, and it's also making the genre a lot fresher, I think, by by adding in these quirks, it's one of the most exciting city builders that I and I think a lot of us have played in uh, many years. And um, another key aspect of it is that it's kind of a survival city builder in the way that you know we've been talking about games like Vanished or Oxygen Not Included or RimWorld or uh, games like that that have... Uh, the strong possibility of losing uh, because this is a roguelike that's actually built into the game where you can lose and it's not like a screaming and rending your rending your hair and all that. It's like, okay, yeah, I lost that and I figured out why I lost that and next time I could try something else. So uh, yeah, there are a lot, of, a lot of different trends that have sort of come to a peak here in this game and I think it's a game that has put them together in a really fine fashion. Luke, did you play any of the early access, or are you also? No, I'm ver- I'm very new. I've I've sworn off playing a lot of really early early access games altogether because I find it really hard to to circle back. Like I find it hard to play a kind of busted early version and then circle back around later and try and do it again. So I've started like holding off and just waiting for these games to get to some semblance of being finished. And so yeah, I'm the same. When this was getting close to 1.0, um, like maybe a week or two before, that's when I jumped in and started playing it as well so yeah I, I I've, say- I've i've been absolutely like i've had my socks blown off by this game it's i'm glad i didn't sort of play it early i'm glad i got to sort of play the more polished the slightly more fleshed out version of it now because yeah this thing is incredible i will say that as someone who played from when it came out in early access like the core game is roughly the same like there are some advantages uh the metagame is a lot more robust i'm not sure it's always better but it's def- there's definitely a lot more of the meta game in uh in it now but like this was a this was a blow your socks off game from the beginning uh it's mostly been it's mostly been tweaks to some balance tweaks uh some additions and uh major meta game shifts that have been the, the only real changes yeah, that was actually the next thing I was going to ask you about, because when we did the early access episode on this, um, which looks like it was October 2021, so a little more than two years ago, um, everybody was already saying, this is amazing, you've got to play this, like pretty much from the jump. And I didn't get around to it until now, um, partly out of my own just like inertia of like, yeah, I, being I'm a not- full-time strategy reviewer. And it's like, you want me to play another game? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious not what... that anyone was wrong about like deciding to wait or, or anything, <laughs> just that in this particular case, uh, like I've started like four or five different campaigns with it and there are, yeah, there are definitely differences, but like, it's still the game that I fell in love with the first time. Yeah. So I remember I was talking in, uh, on the, the panelist discord about, about seals, which are like now this metagame progression thing where you have to go do a seal, which is sort of like a boss fight level that permanently increases the amount of time you have before the storm comes and wipes all of your progress off the 
the face of the earth. <laughs> and uh, you're confused because you thought I was talking about like seals, like the, the creature, like they had added seals to the game or something. I mean, they, they added boxes, <laughs> they added harpies. Why not seals? This makes sense. Oh, the harpies weren't even in? No, the harpies, the harpies were the first one that they added. That was like two or three months in. That was the first big uh. thing that like we were excited about following the roadmap in the Discord. Um, Got it. it was, okay. They helped, but they didn't like dramatically change the whole nature of the game. It's just neat to have a different a different side of side of things but yeah the biggest the biggest change that's happened in as they have moved towards 1.0 is the existence of these seals at the end of the cycle in this game uh you have a cycle of usually four maybe five cities that you can build before the storm comes um and you try to like in the past, before they added the seal boss fights to the end of these cycles, you would try to, for example, go to new parts of the map that you hadn't seen before in order to uh, get some achievements or something by, like, winning a game near the Ominous Presence modifier. Um, but now you're actually building in the direction of a seal, which is a place where you build a city right next to something that is very strange and gives you like much harder quests and makes things a lot harder on you but with pretty big rewards if you actually uh tend to do it so there's like they it's like a city builder with a boss fight which is a, just a very strange thing to say but uh <laughs> i think it largely pulls it off i have not like gotten super deep into my current campaign to the point where i can say definitely like this is a thing that works or doesn't work um, I've only done the bronze seal, but uh, yeah, it's this is this is easily the biggest change since they like completely reshaped the progression system into a tree that you you built you you bought stuff after each uh, after each run, and then that's how you unlocked new things. That was more of just like a linear progression in the past. Um, so yeah, I don't know how far did you get in the game, Lynn? How many seals have you? Yeah, so I've made it to the bronze seal twice, but I have not actually completed the bronze seal. I I think I'm getting into some sort of uh, doldrums in terms of my city's productive output that maybe would have been obvious to somebody who played more during yeah. early access. And I'm I'm still kind of getting my head around some of those basic things like how. How do I use stormwater? When do I actually need to put down a rain collector? Like, okay, now I have six missions from the queen and I'm not producing any of the things I need to complete any of them. <laughs> so yeah. I need to just like completely change gears here. And that can be very difficult, especially if you don't have a lot of base materials left. Um, Luke, how about you? I've made it to the bronze seal once. Because I I have the most hilariously thematic like <laughs> bug in my in my game. I don't know how widespread this is, but as a, every time I do a run, I get an increasing number of of crash to desktops, and it's like mm. I'll, I'll make it through like the first settlement and I'll be fine, and then the second I'll get maybe one, and then by the the third and fourth settlement I'm getting sort of two to three crashes to desktop per settlement, and sometimes the autosave is right before it crashed, and sometimes it's not, and so it's like 
I feel like the the weight of the stresses of the storm <laughs> and, and and the the the, 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 the stresses of trying to impress the queen. It's like it's not just weighing me down; it's weighing my actual like Windows 11 desktop down to the point where it can't handle it either. And so it's giving us both these nice little breaks. So I did personally yeah, once to get to the the bronze seal, but like it's my sessions are normally a case of like me tolerating a couple of crashed desktops until I'm like, ah, oh, I'll just play more of this tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I don't I, know how, I don't know how dramatically things change later on. I'm definitely, I definitely haven't sort of got up to my eyeballs in late game content, but I've made a lot more early game runs than I should have by like trying to troubleshoot that maybe if I just start a new game, it'll, it'll fix this. And like, no, it doesn't, but I'm an idiot. So I keep trying it anyway. Yeah, I have never really had any kind of stability issues in this game. I, I like maybe it's crashed once or twice in all the times I've played it, but this might be a thing worth worth sending in bug reports or something. Yeah, that, I, that I keep meaning like to, I keep meaning to, but then I just I just get a bit bummed out, and then I go and play Assassin's Creed or something else and forget all about it. But yes, I will. I should hope for, I should do that because it does sound quite extreme. <laughs> I'm giving like I'm I'm here to talk about how much I love this amazing game in spite of this. So hopefully, yeah, that's, that that's like, it's pretty impressive that you're not yeah. just here spewing fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like in 99 of cases, I would be like, "Fuck this game," and I would never play it again because it'd be too much hassle. But like, hey, here we are. So, well done against the storm in spite of <laughs> like all of this. Well, I think okay. What what excites you about this game? Yeah, yeah. Like, so I it's it's the, the I initially was like super into the like I really love games that can can strip a genre down to the studs. So like um and then the closest comparison to this I could feel like initially anyway was I felt like I was playing Bad North. So you know how Bad North was just like yeah. hey what what is the essence of an RTS expressed as on a smaller scale and as simply as possible. I felt initially like that's what this was. Like the, the size of the maps that you're given to play on are so small that it really makes it really like, well, like, like you've already said, it, it really takes the things that you love best about a city builder, which is like individually placing each little house and drawing these nice little roads and putting a nice little lamppost on each junction at an important part of the town. Like that really micromanagement, small scale city building stuff. Um, that you love so much in the first hour or so of, of building a city builder is there and it's great. But the more that you do that, the more you realize that like the roguelite stuff they've implemented into this game, isn't just a gimmick. Like it's actually, yeah. they, they've, they've worked it so fundamentally into everything the game does. And it works so well that you sort of get that, double take of like oh this is a great it's a small scale city builder this is exactly what i want i I don't want the sprawl i just want to do these nice little buildings and then oh holy shit like this is everything i like about city builders but now every time i play it it's throwing me a different challenge with different resources and different units and like i'm having to think about this in two completely different ways but in ways that are so complementary to each other that like yeah i think i said this in my impressions piece on the site it's very it's like it's very rare that i am so impressed with sort of the underlying design of a game that I can't even handle it. Like I just sort of sit back in my chair and just exhale like, oh man, I can't even <laughs> yeah. play this. It's so smart. Whereas this, there's multiple points in this game where I've been like, oh, I can't believe somebody even thought of this, let alone implemented it this well. Like I'm just so impressed by the way everything is so frictionless and like just all the all these disparate design elements just come together so perfectly. They they match the, the context and the setting of the game so well. Like it just, oh. Man, I could go on all day. 
but <laughs> that's yeah. why you're here. Yeah, I guess. But yeah. yeah. Well, I also think as a roguelike or roguelite, what I, I, I'm not entirely clear on if there is much of a distinction between those two things. Uh, but I, I think it it's very well structured from that side as well, because um, sort of the way the progression works, you're, you're upgrading buildings in this capital city that is like not it's the one thing that doesn't get washed away when the storm comes and um every little thing you buy is like some sort of like two percent bonus to villager movement speed or like the 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 bar that says how mad the queen is at you will fill up two percent slower so it is like um very much a like your first city in against the storm that is the most screwed you will ever be, uh, which to me is is tremendously motivating because some roguelikes that don't have that just like steady little bit by bit sort of incremental permanent progression, I think can become very discouraging. As long as I know that I'm getting from this cycle, I'm getting something meaningful that's a permanent bonus that I can carry with me. Um, and then also the way that they do building unlocks, which, again, this is another kind of annoyance of mine with with roguelikes, is if the only thing you're getting from progressing on on like the meta level is adding more cards into the deck, adding more things you can possibly get. <clears throat> um, I'm not a huge fan of that. And what Against the Storm does is it's it's sort of a hybrid where you will unlock new buildings that go into this pool of like. I'm, I'm going to have like three or four to pick from every time I gain a grace point. But then on top of that, some structures eventually become just part of your starting kit once you get further up the progression track. And I really liked that because it's like, yeah, eventually I'm going to have all the houses for all the different species and I'm not going to have to worry about rolling one of those. Um, I, think, I think the thing it does so well there in that, in yeah. that regard as well is the way it matches the so every every time you this is another roguelite element to it is every time you, yeah. you land at a new settlement it's a different set of resources available to you like some may be abundant in meat other ones in like berries or roots or there might be more farm fields and so you you get this different set of resources that all require different types of of buildings and the the underlying assumption with a lot of like less good roguelites is that you may eventually find yourself stranded or stuck or forced to do something because you've drawn a set of buildings that don't match the type of resources or terrain that you're currently playing on and that can make it really frustrating because like you can have a run derailed by just bad luck i think one of the the most elegant things that this game does is like because it's a roguelite you can't develop a single strategy for each settlement so you can't just play every every game the same mm -hmm. you can't have a certain build order or a certain reliance on resources or, or stuff that you're 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 constructing for trade or whatever you can't do that every game's different but the way this game so so what it does with its resources is it's actually quite overwhelming the number of buildings that you can unlock and what the game does though is it actually makes most of its buildings incredibly versatile but in a way that still encourages individual like fast track learning so 
you'll often need to so a lot of the game structured on you need to complete these orders that are coming from the queen and they'll often be just you need to make 10 packs of trade provisions and then you need to sell them or you need to have harvested 100 pieces of timber or whatever and so on some maps that's going to be harder than others but the buildings it's given you every time you hover over them you can see that they specialize and so some are better at making trade provisions than others but if you've drawn one of the ones that's not as good you can still get the job done it's just going to be slightly harder or you might have to think differently about the way that you're you're gathering the resources for that certain item and so every single order that you're given on every single settlement that you roll or land on just becomes this beautifully elastic struggle between oh i really could have done with like the most advanced type of of building that processes timber into planks into wooden planks here because i need to build so many planks to build so many extra buildings but i don't have that so i'm going to need to make do by using this building instead but then i'm going to need to optimize because every building is staffed i need to make sure that the 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 beaver in beavers in this case because they're the best at dealing with timber are working in that building but then because they're working there i need to encourage more beavers to come to the town so i need to look after the beavers more than the humans or the lizard men or the harpies like it's just this beautifully elastic set of competing um, systems that never feel cheap or never feel unfair like so many roguelites do everything you always unlock or roll always feels manageable you just it's up to you to just make sure that you're teasing them or squeezing them just the right way to be able to get the job done yeah the the other thing that i like about it that they've added i think as they have added more complex buildings uh into the game but or this is might just be a thing that I noticed as I progressed further in the game, but the way that certain buildings look a certain way, uh, they they each have an own, their own aesthetic, and that aesthetic will like match the races that you can have because you can have yeah. five different races in the game. There's humans, beavers, lizards, and then later they added harpies and foxes, and those also show up a little bit later in your campaign too. Um, each of them has a different style of building that they have for like their individual houses. So the beavers are like light brown and very like thatch wood, wooden looking. And then like the beaver based uh, buildings in the game have that same vibe, the carpenter and the lumber mill specifically. Uh, and then you like go over to like the harpy style houses and the harpy houses like match what the apothecary and, or the weaver or whatever looks like. And they, all these things like have a lovely little aesthetic. That's like, if you're just looking at the game mechanically, um, they don't necessarily jump out that way, but it, when you like take a step back and you're like, Oh, look, I've, created a building or i have created a town where all the buildings have like a similar aesthetic in similar parts of the town and they're like taking the resources back and forth between these buildings and everything is like has fit in the right place and i didn't even realize it but i made it like beautiful at the same time uh just very clever stuff that the, the developers have done here yeah the other thing i found really interesting about having buildings aspected to different species is that some of them are like this species is better at working at this building and some of them are just like they'll be happier working here and i haven't the lizard any that are both yeah 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 lizards like anything with fire because they're cold-blooded 
Um, beavers, like they're they're faster at anything involving wood. So like chopping trees or working at a sawmill, but they they like doing tinkery stuff. If you put them in like an engineering building, yeah. they'll be very pleased with that. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure what the humans they're they're good at farming but i haven't found a building that humans are like oh yeah uh, this is this is the Lynn, stuff Lynn, it's booze oh okay yeah oh you're right the, yeah i did the I humans did in, a, in a brewery or a wine cellar <laughs> and they're happy as can be uh yeah i'm drinking a prost winter lager from prost brewing in littleton colorado not a sponsor but um uh, maybe they should yeah. be maybe maybe i do drink a lot of their beer um yeah, so yeah, there's like a trade-off between okay, I have this beaver, should I put him to work doing what he's best at or put him to work doing something that will make him happy, which you know, contributes to this we probably talked about this mechanic on the early up or you guys probably talked about this mechanic on the early access episode, but uh filling up a bar to a certain threshold uh, where they are like ecstatic. I forget what the actual in-game term for it is. Um, that will actually fill up the progression track for you to finish the level before the queen runs out of patience and declares your endeavor. Yeah, a flop. Uh, we're, we're sort of getting sort of getting like backwards in terms of of talking yeah. about what what's there. So like, I think maybe maybe talk a little bit about like what the general arc of uh, of a run is and that'll that'll be a good start here yeah uh luke do you want to take that like what is the first what are the first things you think about when you're loading into a new city oh my personal strategy uh, <laughs> how do i it's, it's just make it nice it's just make a nice little place for these nice little people <laughs> to live first and foremost. I, I always go shell like it's it's wood first because the this every uh-huh. set, the one constant in this game is so like the way the settlements work is you know a lot of city builders will drop you on an expansive endless grass plain this one is a like against the storm is it basically you are finding pockets of, of of habitable space in this enormously dense impenetrable kind of forested um evil woodland kind of looking fantasy world and so how it expresses that is you get these little clearings of land that are surrounded by trees and you slowly expand the size of your settlement as well as unlocking new roguelike challenges for you to complete by punching through the woodland and opening up new clearings, like new little pockets of land in there. And so um, given like that's always a really important way of clearing Queen's orders and, and doing some of the things, it's I always go timber first. Um, and then split between food and housing. Um, but like I was saying earlier, I think I think one of the cool things about the game is that there isn't really a, a you know universal effective build order because a lot of times when you start a new settlement, you'll have that in mind, and then you'll be like, oh my god, they've got so many eggs here. You know, <laughs> I'll get some meat first instead. <laughs> And then the the meat I get will keep the lizard men happy, or it might unlock one of the queen's orders bills that I'm getting quicker. So I'll actually focus on the meat instead of the timber um, this time around. So yeah, it'll. That's what we were saying about it being randomized. How every every time you drop into a new settlement as part of a run, 
you can never sort of take a pre-baked strategy in there. There's always like, they're always throwing some wrench in it that, that's going to force you to think on the fly and, and adapt to it. But um, to get back to the original point before I was talking about my, yeah. my personal strategy was a, a run will basically take the form of you. So narratively, the game's called Against the Storm. You live, you're in this fantasy kingdom where there's this never-ending evil storm that you know it's always raining it's always doing evil shit it's always washing away at any attempt at building a settlement after a certain amount of time whatever um and so your job is you're working from this one city in the middle of the map where this queen this magical queen who rules over everybody has the power to keep that evil storm away from that city and so every run is you venturing out from that city with a bunch of these sturdy fantasy pioneers and you have to you you're given um, a small pocket of land you have to build a settlement um, and you have to complete orders that are coming from the queen within a certain amount of time in order to progress to the next settlement um, which every time you move on you know the dice will roll you'll be given a, a new new terrain new um, new starting villages new resources or whatever um, and it, obviously it's a roguelite so as you go things are going to get more chaotic they're going to get more difficult and every time you're playing in a settlement as you're trying to complete the orders you're trying to every time you complete an order or keep everybody happy you're filling this blue progression meter and when you fill that meter um congratulations you've finished the settlement you can move on to the next one right next to that is a red meter that's filling up and that's the queen's approval disapproval i can't remember impatience impatience that's the one impatience yeah. yeah and that that fills up and it fills up alarmingly quickly um depending on what's going on and if that bar gets to the end that it's it then you're done um it's not game over like you're not dead but that's when the queen sort of pulls the plug on this expedition and says look you're wasting too much time too much money too many lives um come back to the main city and you can try again um next spring or <laughs> whatever they call she, the seasons in this yeah game. she's she's big into means testing so you know yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh god um I, I yeah. always thought the queen was mildly evil, but you just you just made it really clear how what she is <laughs> too. Well, and also like I don't know anything about like the deep lore of this game or what you might find out later, but it seems pretty obvious to me that she caused this. Like, yeah, it's, it's, whatever's going on is her fault ultimately. Um, uh, the, the setting is really interesting because it it seems a lot like another another favorite of ours. Uh, from a few years back, the Mutant Year Zero game, which is a, you know, it's a tactical puzzle game, completely the opposite of this, uh, extremely narrative-based as opposed to a roguelike, but it involves like a weird post-apocalyptic world where humans and animals are kind of running around together, figuring out mysteries in the deep, dark forests. Uh, and yeah, it's a uh, it sounds kind of trite when I say it, but for whatever reason, this game just like gets the aesthetic like uh, in a way that makes it never feel like oh, I'm playing a cutesy game with animals or or right. anything like that. I mean, I I, I say this as someone who is uh, not a furry. Uh, I will I will <laughs> clarify that that this is maybe a thing that I perhaps as as an individual am somewhat skeptical of that many other people might very much enjoy and that's that's cool by them but as a person who would normally be skeptical of like cute animal city builder just just a little bit like it's not going to stop me but uh this is not like a cute animal city builder game this is something that just like 
it it all fits. It feels right. I think a lot of that is also the music. This game has a very lovely, just ambient, slightly ominous but slightly soothing soundtrack uh, that I I I am impressed with every time I actually focus on it. But it's very easy to not focus on as well. Yeah, I was gonna say the vibe I get from it is very. It's almost like Brothers Grimm. Like it's 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 fairy tales, but it's kind of dark fairy tales a little bit. And um, I've, I also, I think we actually described it in the early access re- episode also as Redwall esque. Yeah, I was about to say it's very um, it's very Redwall in terms of it's like yeah. yes, these are cute little animals, but also like take one step back and this is some pretty dark shit. So yeah, like, yeah, or like Watership Down, kind of like yeah. Um, yeah, it's because there's also the other like pressure that's on you is the hostility of the forest. And it goes up every year that you are building the settlement. Um, but it also goes up based on how many woodcutters you have total, which is a really interesting break on how quickly you can expand because wood is like the basis of everything. You know, it all starts with wood and like you can set up like three woodcutters right off the bat and you're going to be blazing through those Queen's request missions, but you're also going to be making the forest mad. And then also you get a little bit of like permanent forest unhappiness um, every time you break through into a new glade. So like the bigger your city gets, basically. um, Yeah, also population. Like in addition yeah, yeah. to the actual glades, but the the core yeah. population you have is also a an increase on the hostility meter, which is uh, yeah. This is another yeah, one of those the fact that you need about. you need like you can't stop cutting down timber because like right. I don't think we've ever mentioned that like the way this is a survival game as well as a roguelite as well as a city builder is it's very sort of frostpunk esque where yeah, uh-huh. like this this storm is is hazardous to life and the further you go the more dangerous it is and the only thing keeping your people alive are these giant hearths that you you can construct but the catch that which can keep everyone warm because it just never stops raining in this world but the catch is that you need to keep that thing lit at all times like you can't let it go out and so you just always need to be feeding it so you always need to be extracting yeah. or cutting down the resources that are making the rest of your job harder but it's the only thing you can do to keep alive in the first place and oh man competing systems fitting together perfectly <laughs> yeah, yeah. well and then yeah, cold- there's a, there's a lot of these elastic things yeah then, then there's coal that you can build coal takes timber to get going but it's a lot more efficient than timber once you get it, but you actually have to have a decent timber stock or input output in order to make the coal work. Um, yeah, it, it can be, it can be a little haggard. I did a the city that I did right before this show was one where I just could not get ahead on timber at any point in the yeah. game, and I tried to set it up so that every time my villager left or died, that I would get stuff which is nice. Uh, that can be an extremely useful, if kind of brutal way to play. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the more specific kind of Slay the Spire-like things where you can set it up so that you get food and money every time a villager leaves. Um, but uh, that also increases the impatience. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's, it's a real, it gave me a real run for my money and I couldn't actually keep that tightrope going just because I could not get enough timber um well i don't know if you've seen but there's some maps that actually have coal 
mine. You can build a coal mine. Yeah. And that's like better than gold, really, because like if you, as long as that coal mine is running, it will run out eventually. You you can really ease back on the timber production because, yeah, coal burns longer than timber. And uh, if you're not burning timber, you don't need nearly as many woodcutters because you don't have like one entire woodcutters hut that is just keeping the fire lit um, like you normally would. Yeah. Um, so so to go back to my initial question, I realized yeah. that or not an initial one, but the one that uh, I said about yeah. the general arc of these games. Um, I just went over this while I was streaming this a couple days ago, so it's it's pretty fresh in my head. But like there are basically three levels of the economy in against the storm. You could argue if there's there's even four. Um, the first is like you have a raw materials economy, and this is the thing that you have to set up at the start of every game. You have to set up, get your woodcutters so they can get timber. Timber is the raw material for planks and coal and a lot of other things. So you need to get that going. You need to get raw food of some kind. Uh, and then you need to also like start working on getting other building or fabric materials. Then the second layer is that you start turning these into via buildings, turning the raw materials into basically the core building blocks that you need to actually put new buildings together, which are turning timber into planks, turning stone or clay into bricks, and turning various plant fibers or leathers into fabrics. And once you get those three things going, which you can do with a building that is in every single game extremely inefficiently, but you can also look for a carpenter. That'll do, get planks more efficiently. You can get a weaver. That'll get fabric more efficiently. Uh, you can get a, a brickyard or a kiln or whatever in order to get bricks. You want to get all these things. So this is kind of the second stage, is turning the raw materials into more complex materials. The third stage is turning the complex materials into the things that actually keep your characters happy. So as you get later into a run, you will start like turning the your raw food stuffs into biscuits or turning it into pickled goods or whatever. The getting getting better food keeps your villagers happier. Uh, fabric can be turned into coats. Coats are a great way to keep your characters happy because it's raining all the fucking time. They live in Portland. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it really uh, is the Portland simulator. Yeah, yeah, and and there are a lot of furries too. So, here, <laughs> hi, I live in Portland. It's fine. Um, I'm allowed to. I know. I, I some of my best friends are furries. I don't know. Uh, but there are also aspects of this where you turn potentially useful things into something useless in order to have that useless, th like a directly useless thing. So for example, you can build a farm. If you get the building to build a farm and find fertile soil and put that all together, the farm will be able to grow either vegetables or grain. Vegetables can be used directly. They can be immediately eaten anytime a villager is hungry. Grain gets converted into flour, uh, which cannot be used directly, but you need the flour in order to make the biscuits and the pies, which your villagers love. Uh, this also can create a system where uh, you have to watch kind of your inputs and your outputs to make sure that you don't have too much being output. Uh, so if grain 
Okay, grain's a bad example because grain can't be eaten. But if you're producing a bunch of mushrooms, mushrooms can also be turned into flour. If you were just set up a building to make infinite flour, then every mushroom you have is being turned into flour. So you actually have a mechanism in the game to put a cap on these things. Uh, the cap allows you to like have your economy not just be throwing, uh, throwing materials into a pit um, when you're creating like trade goods or luxury goods, you want to have a cap on those because otherwise it's just throwing those materials into a pit for more money, but your villagers might actually need to eat that food. They might actually need to build those buildings. So this is a second element or a third element of difficulty in that complex, in that complexity. And that might be actually what's starting to, to hold you back, Lynn. I don't know if you've worked with the recipe limits at all, but yeah, you can... You can definitely fall apart just from taking the food and turning it into flour and never doing yeah. flour. Well, I just re realized on the most recent city I did that I was running out of timber and I had like 245 planks that were yes, just sitting exactly. around not doing anything because you can't burn planks for some reason. I guess it's treated wood and it would make people sick. But um, yeah. yeah, so I have I have started to pick up on the fact that... Uh, you don't want to process everything that can be processed all the time. Right. So there is a recipe limits book up on the top right that you can actually save and load recipe limits into. So I tend ah. to have like a, a limit that I load every time of like 33 of the processed goods, like the, the complex ones and 50 of the um, sort of basic combination goods, like the planks and the bricks and stuff. And yeah, so I'm not going to build more than 33 of the things and I'll let the raw materials pile up because it's rare that you're actually going to need more than 33 and you can adjust it as needed if you get like a, a queen's order that says she wants 50 of something. Um, so yeah, that's that's a part of the game that I can use in order to not have that, that pit and you know, it becomes a thing that is necessary and definitely like do show all put in some relatively low but useful number and save it and then load it into every game you start and you will save a ton of time that way. Anyway, the fourth layer of the economy is that you get service buildings that take the super advanced goods and make your characters really happy with them. So for example, you can build a tea house that uses tea that you might be able to build from an apothecary somewhere. Uh, and the tea house will make the characters who really like tea be happier. You can do that with a temple uh, that can help with education and religion. And they like each have needs for uh, and different races, like certain things like the lizards really like brawling and religion. Um, humans really like drinking. Uh, yeah. I so love the, the personality that it injects. Like beavers are fancy little lads. Yeah. Want wine and like banquets and stuff. Yeah, so the so you have the this fourth element that's kind of you're just sort of dumping things into happiness. And happiness in addition to the queen's orders are is like the main way that you will increase your reputation and actually win a run. Uh so that part is is very helpful, but each part of these is balanced, right? So like I like to start every game with you get these three blueprints at the start of every game that you can pick from. My ideal set of that would be something to make planks, either a carpenter or a lumber mill, a weaver uh, in order to get fabric cheaper, or maybe a brickyard, but either either fabric or bricks, and then some kind of farm. 
assuming that fertile soil is going to be anywhere near me, which is a safe assumption on most maps, although there are a few that don't have them. You have to get your food entirely from other ways. Um, but like sometimes I don't get those things and sometimes I have to figure out some completely different way to start building up my economy. Sometimes you basically have to win the game entirely through trade. So you want to build up a, a trade route or a trading post and then trade routes as quickly as possible and then just churn out money and then buy everything you possibly can from every trader who shows up. Uh, it's it gives you that flexibility. Sometimes you can do a, a game entirely through happiness. There's a, even these little deeds, which are ways that you can progress through the game. They're sort of like in-game achievements. Uh, and the deeds will also reward you for doing specific tasks. Like uh, there's one for if you can build, if you can uh, do an entire game where all your reputation bonuses are come through happiness, uh, that one's real fucking challenging, but it's a yeah. really interesting challenge for just making you think about the game a different way, as opposed to, I have to tick off all these queen's orders. You don't even want the queen's orders. You want to just try to make your villagers as happy as they can as quickly as they can, because the impatience is filling up. But anyway, this is sort of the, sort of the core aspect of it. It's attached to an impression-style city builder that, like, all your characters are actually physically walking and moving through the village. So logistics is an important part of, like, how far away from my main warehouse are my industrial buildings? Do I need to build another warehouse in order to get more industrial buildings going in a different part of the game? Do I need to build another hearth because you have to have your houses near the flame. Otherwise they're too cold to actually be used. So uh, yeah, the, this is the push pull that Luke is talking about, but it's, it's very cleverly done. It's very cute to watch. Like every part of it just seems to fit. And it's also fairly rare that you find a part of the interface that like is confusing. Uh, did you know that you can actually build deeper mines so that you can keep getting coal out? No, no. <laughs> so this is like the this is like the 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 only part of this game that is like EU four uh, spaghetti, right? Where you have to click on a different tab on the mine building, and on that tab you can actually build the mine deeper. Uh, it's the only thing that's huh. like that in the game, as far as I know, other than when you get the rain punk going which is also in its own tab, but it's like at least very notably in its own tab. This one is just like mines. They happen to have deeper, uh, deeper connections into the ground. Who knew? Wow. Yep. I didn't, yeah. Didn't realize that. Um, yeah. The other thing when you were talking about logistics that I think was like a noob trap that I fell into very early on, is that there's kind of like three tiers of clearings you can cut your way to um, throughout the forest, and they're kind of randomly placed. Sometimes you don't really have a choice, but there's tiny ones that have a small amount of resources and nothing bad will happen <laughs> when you un unveil them. And then there's dangerous clearings, which tend to have quite a bit more resources, but there's always some sort of a timed event that happens when you reveal them. Like you have to burn down an evil fishman totem or it's going to, you know, randomly kill five people or something like that. And there's like a timer on it. Um, and then forbidden glades, which are like an upgraded, like 
it's it's even more resources and the thing that you need to do is going to be even harder to accomplish and have even worse consequences. And for the first probably 15, 10, 15 hours I was playing this, I would always just snake my way to those little glades, which eventually just because they have to walk back, like they have to walk back to their house. They have to walk back to the, the fire to make a, to take a break. Like there's mandatory, there's labor laws in this kingdom. Everybody has a mandated, <laughs> you know, 30 minute break or whatever. Um, it's like so, California. You have to take lunch. Yeah, exactly. So if you snake your way and like kind of weave back and forth to get all the non-dangerous glades, uh, your woodcutters are eventually going to take like a year to get any wood back to your storehouse, even with roads and warehouses. You can build smaller warehouses that are like way stations. But the other thing that I eventually realized is like risk versus reward for the dangerous glades it's usually a much bigger reward than it is a risk. Like you really kind of want to go for the dangerous ones first, because like mm -hmm. a lot of times they'll have like a giant patch of fertile land. And now you don't have to worry about food anymore. Like you can, you know, or, you know, they'll have some, some treasure crates that you can break open with tools that give you a grace point. So you can unlock another building really fast. And on some maps, that's like really critical. If it's like, Oh, I don't have any way to produce this specific thing yet. I'm going to be kind of screwed. <laughs> I really need to get some more grace points. But the flip um, side of that is that the yeah is that those ones and then the even worse ones. I forget what they're mm. called, but which are hilariously so the bad ones yeah. are marked. The so the a normal glade yeah. is is just a glade on the map. It's 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 not marked. A dangerous glade has this like flaming goat's skull on it, which very clearly says like this bad shit. Yeah. Here. Um, uh -huh. hilariously the worst ones just have a, a flaming goat's head that's twice as big as the other one <laughs> like, doesn't have a separate icon it's just the yeah. bad icon is bigger please don't come here i opened yeah. one of those the other day and it had like it it blew that risk reward thing um out of it like i should never have gone in there like i, I i'm never going in another one again it had basically godzilla in it like this enormous <laughs> And the materials it so every time you you unlock a an event doesn't matter what tier of glade it is, um, basically you're given two choices on how to deal with it. Like if there's a ruined building, you can either rebuild it or you can strip it for parts. If there's a if there's an animal, you can like I don't know do something nice to it or you can kill it. Whichever one of those two things you choose, you need to assign some of your workers to the task to do it, but you also need to bring certain types of resources to that event to sort of trigger it. Um, it's a bit abstract considering what some of them are, but like that's how the game works. So you got to deal with it. The Godzilla one I got needed multiple resources that I didn't, hadn't even started the production chain for, let alone got to the end point of them. Um, and the punishment for having unlocked. So, so with these dangerous glades, when you unlock them, it, it that's it. As soon as you chop the trees down and sort of activate these events, the timer has begun on them. And the, the timer is ticking down to something terrible happening. And in this case, it was like, oh, I forget what it was. It was definitely like auto, it was automatically killing some of my villagers every like eight minutes or 10 minutes or something. And it was doing something else destructive as well. 
it took me so long to get the entire production line set up to satisfy that objective that I was like, by the end of it, I was like, man, I just shouldn't have cut those trees down. Yeah. This, this game was telling me like it had a giant flaming goat skull on it. It was like, you don't want to go in here. And I'm a huge oh. idiot. I was like, no, I'll go in here. And then I'm like, no, I shouldn't have gone in there. There's a Godzilla was in there. And now I've like, I've lost a bunch of my best villagers and everyone's upset with me. And they're totally like, that's totally fair enough because I shouldn't have gone in there. And I've now learned a really important lesson about <laughs> colonizing an evil forest and risk yeah. versus reward. Yeah. Well, and then the, yeah. the seals are like an upgrade of that because it's it's a forbidden glade that you have to appease multiple times oh. to actually finish it. Um, and it's going to be different objectives. There's usually a few you can pick from for each stage of the quote unquote boss fight. But yeah, it's. It's it can be pretty rough. Yeah. Right. So this is this is one of those things that like really is one of the best push pulls that the game has is trying to determine like when and how often you should go into the forbidden or the dangerous place because the rewards are often really good. Even if the reward from the the main event itself isn't necessarily then you there's a bunch of space there's a bunch of fertile soil there's a bunch of new areas for uh your your camps to go to and start picking things up you can you go into a forbidden glade this is likely to have all the stuff you need to set up a secondary zone for your city um but it usually does require there there are two options for like getting rid of the bad thing that's going to happen one of them is usually easier and gives you like a bunch of sort of raw materials. And the other one is harder, but gives you a longer term buff or makes it quicker to finish the game or finish your run. Um, so like you'll get the queen's reputation from it. So you're, you're constantly having to choose both. Do I want to go in these dangerous or forbidden glades? And then do I have the economy where I can take the better option and actually like get the full rewards out of these dangerous events or do i just like want to do a smash and grab with the raw materials even though this might actually uh long term be a little bit worse for me than doing the other things or like i can't actually do either one of these events i need to ramp up my economy as quickly as possible before godzilla kills six of my villagers uh, <laughs> And these things, these things tend to happen across the entire game. I've gotten to the point, and this is perhaps something that I should work on a little more, where I just basically never end up even going near a Forbidden Glade. And that's, yep. not, that's not me saying that's a Forbidden Glade. I don't want to go near it. It's just like I build kind of in the circle around my main my main camp i know when i want to like add go into this glade as like a, a next part of my strategy and forbidden glades just usually aren't even there when i get there but as the game progresses as you do like a seal uh, a seal mission where you need to get more and more resources quickly the forbidden glades become a lot more a lot more appealing when you're doing that kind of thing um, and there are also various deeds slash achievements slash queen's orders for going into the Forbidden Glades, which is, uh, which can be kind of exciting and give you motivation to play in a way that maybe you wouldn't necessarily want to play. Yeah, to be clear, one of them that is the absolute worst is there's a particular Queen's Order that is, can you break through into two Forbidden Glades within two minutes of each other? Um, yeah. And like the pro of that is great. Like you've, it's, it's substantial. It's often a substantial 
um, reward for doing that, you know, which helps you on, on your way to clearing the settlement. On the other hand, you have unlocked two death clocks uh, <laughs> at, at yeah. once you, and you've, you've increased the chances of like not just having one terrible thing that you can't respond to, but having two terrible things you can't respond to like ticking down at once. Um, <laughs> so it's like then, there's so that like horrible can, risk reward again. You can also have a deed where like the more of those you have going at once when you finish a map, you get like a major meta progression reward for having two active or forbidden glade events going on or whatever, which can be kind of wild to try to try to live through if you're not like actively planning on having that click in right as you're about to finish i should say that some of them are very funny like i've i've sp i've talked about the the death one often because that's like the most extreme but the funniest one you can trigger negatively is one that um it washes a, there's like a flood and it washes away all your roads every like eight minutes <laughs> so it's like <laughs> yeah. it's it's never a big enough problem that it makes me solve that quest <laughs> but it's always this like annoying thing where i'm halfway through trying to move all this timber somewhere or build something and it's like ah now i gotta draw the roads again <laughs> which initially is a huge pain and then i'm the rest of me is like oh wait i loved i love drawing these roads this is like the best <laughs> thing about a city builder this i'm back at the start of the level again i'm gonna draw a little road here and then i'm gonna connect these little houses here and this is great like you this was supposed to be a punishment, but actually I'm having a great time here. So I'm going to leave this <laughs> negative one running the entire game. Yeah. That's another tip I would give to new people is like, just don't worry. Don't worry about going crazy with roads. They're one of the only things that doesn't cost any resources and gives you like a noticeable, tangible benefit. Just build, build roads, build many roads. You will always have usually at least one or two people who aren't doing anything that can be building roads. So there's no reason not to build more roads. Um, I did not build nearly enough roads early on because I was thinking about, oh, well, I can't just have people building roads all the time. I need them to do other stuff. It's like, no, it's it's worth it. Yeah. Um, and like that when they get to that point, they will usually prioritize the more important things and they'll go back to building the roads. So, yeah. You yeah, can even tell them to prioritize yeah. the things you want them to You actually should building as many roads as possible because this like we talked about earlier but yeah. one of the real appeals of this game is that it's a really intimate city builder and so in addition to building all your necessary structures there's also a tab where you can just build little decorations for your settlement mm -hmm. um sometimes you have to do this for a queen's order other times it's just nice to do nice things for your villagers they're working hard for you and it makes them happier so you can just from this little selection tab, you can just build little benches and lampposts and gardens and flower beds and stuff. And so the more roads you build, the more opportunities you've got to like create some space and just put those nice little treats, you know, those nice little bits of urban planning for your, for your villagers it, to enjoy. It takes a little bit to unlock, but one of my favorites is the gate that you can put over a road that uh, like, I like to put it on. Like this is, this is going out to the first dangerous glade that we found. This is where you leave. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you leave the Shire, little guys. Uh, well, and it, it does have a mechanical impact to some degree, too, because uh, when you get a certain number of houses and decorations around a hearth, it actually upgrades that hearth and gives like a small happiness bonus to everybody. Don't some the of the settlement. And they, don't yeah. some of the races prefer some of the types of decoration as well? Like, I think, is it human? I don't know if I've gotten that far yet. I, I think it um, might be humans that like the street lights. 
um oh yeah or one of the other races i'm not sure but yeah there's this there's specific because there's there's different levels of these decorations as well there are sort of basic decorations and then there are more elaborate advanced ones that may need more resources to build unlike these sort yeah. of standard roads which don't but the payoff for that is yeah you're not only making your settlement look nicer visually like on a personal basis as a single player city builder but like it is having a bigger mechanical impact on how happy and satisfied your, your villagers are going about their day as well I haven't noticed that and feel like that could be you projecting, but also that could actually be in the game. So I'm very curious. To, <laughs> yeah. To see, now I'm doubting myself. So I'm going to look it, it up. Maybe, it maybe, seems I, like maybe it I as be. a human being, maybe I as a human appreciate the street <laughs> yeah. lamps. Um, and I'm just projecting that onto the video game humans. Um, all right. Yeah. I'll, I'll investigate that as soon as we're done here. Uh, that would be very funny. What are what are the like permanent modifiers called that you get to pick every once in a while? I was the cornerstones. Cornerstones. Yeah. Does it? Does anybody? Do you guys have a favorite? Because there's one that I was. I always. I was basically calling it the Len Hafer cornerstone, which is the one where the rebellious spirit, where your people oh, yeah. get happier the more annoyed the queen is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's like, cool. Screw you, queen. <laughs> We're, we're thriving down here which could really a, be a game winner honestly yeah. there's another yeah. one that's basically like rest harder like <laughs> like it's like it's like they rest it's like when they rest they're like these guys are rested and so when they go back to work they're like a certain amount faster or something i'm like yeah that's cool you guys have optimized rest um i'm, <laughs> I'm super proud of my hardworking guys yeah, uh, like I mentioned, like actually going full bore into like murder. Uh, there's like one that is cannibalism, where every time a villager leaves or dies, <laughs> they give you meat. There's another one that's called like a blood pact or a dark pact or something, where every time a villager leaves or dies, you get 10 amber, which is a lot of money in the game. Uh, and then there's also one that it might be later in the game. I don't think I've seen it in this new campaign, which which could put a damper in my murder. Um, but every time you open a new glade, you will automatically lose a villager, but there's, but you'll like be able to see into the glades before they happen, so you know if you can actually like do the stuff in them. But also, there's one where every time you open a new glade, you get a villager. So basically, it's like every time I open a glade, I'm getting a shit ton of resources, and just all I have to do is one one little villager goes out, one little villager comes in, everything's fine. My people are happy. They're healthy. They've eaten a lot. Uh, just maybe there's a big pile of corpses underneath the building look, somewhere. Look, they signed up for this. They knew what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, they there, live, there are. They live in, yeah, they live in this world. They know how dangerous it is. They know what the mission is. Like they've they've signed a, a legal disclaimer. Like they, they they know what they're doing when they go out in the woods. The evil yeah, they're, raining they're, woods. There also is like one of the forbidden glade events is like you can like calm down an evil altar by saying that a sacrifice has to happen every so often. That sacrifice is a dead village every dead villager every five minutes or something. It's kind of unclear like what that actually entails in the text. But yeah, you can basically get all the resources and the happiness from this altar, but you're sacrificing somebody by doing it. So we haven't talked really at all about Rainpunk yet, which is something I'm just now starting to dip my toe into. But it's sort of it's it's a cool expression of the way that this the Against the Storm does sort of modular 
layering of difficulty uh, where I would say at least up to the bronze seal, you don't really need to even worry about it at all. <laughs> Maybe beyond that, it becomes a little bit more necessary, but you can basically get to the point where you you have a little bit of a, an industrial revolution uh, in your play style. Um, I don't know if you'll end up using it every city once you get into it or if it's more of a situational thing where you're basically collecting magic rainwater from the magic, you know, evil storm every year and using it to pump up your buildings um, to be super productive, which eventually requires like building pipe works and stuff like that. Um, and then on the higher difficulties, it actually like attracts I forget what they're called, but like these little light like, plague dudes. Yeah, that you have to like train. It's basically a fire department <laughs> more or less to get rid of them, um, except they they put fire on things instead of yes. putting fires out. They add the fire. Um, it's yeah. It's uh, a flamethrower department. <laughs> Rowan, since you've played more than than I have, have you gotten deeper into the the whole rain punk mechanic um in in one of my previous campaigns i think i got into a level where i was somewhat more comfortable with it but yeah it feels like it's like a fifth layer of the economy uh where you can make buildings more efficient you can make the your people happier in them but at the cost of trying to pull out as much rain as you can and this is a thing that hasn't really been necessary in most of my games, although maybe it could have been in the one that I just did where I was playing on a higher difficulty and got completely screwed by lack of timber, but I don't know for sure. Um, but yeah, it, this is, this feels like it's the like big additional difficulty thing where advanced players can use this to kind of mitigate the major, major spikes, just mechanical spikes of like something that, hit your your global resolve or your happiness for like what it, it might have done five damage but now it does eight uh then you can use the rain puck in order to mitigate this um it's definitely a thing that i use in small doses uh and like there are queen's orders that kind of encourage you to try to use it more um but I think it is a thing that will take you many hours before you even get to that that point, and you can have a really satisfying campaign without ever actually getting to the point where it's like necessary or you're doomed. Um, that said, it is it is a thing that was like I don't remember if it was added part of the way through early access or if it was significantly changed. Could have been both. Uh, but it is one that is kind of a spaghetti addition where, yeah, it was significantly changed where it was kind of automatic, but now you go to each building and set it up uh, manually, which, you know, it gives it gives the player more to do. It allows more customization of what they can do with their buildings, but it also is just, a, it's pretty fucking fiddly. And uh, yeah. as with a lot of this game, there. This is a very detailed game. There are lots of things to fiddle with. Uh, you don't have to fiddle with them in most cases, and you can kind of learn to get to your comfort zone of when and how you should fiddle. And I think it is that way, but uh, it is 
it's a lot more upfront than the other things. Like suddenly you have rain punk technology. What the hell do I do with this? Oh, I better just ignore it. But um, yeah, you might not totally want to ignore it. Well, I don't think you ever have to play on the difficulty where rain punk you will attracts the cyst things or Uh, on the main map there are like little borders that you can see uh kind of circularly around and those are difficulty borders so the first one you can no longer play on settler mode you have to go up to pioneer or the other way around i don't remember oh yeah i I basically mode I basically started on Pioneer. I I thought Settler was a little too easy, but. um. Um, So so the (sighs) advantage of the Settler is that like you can do some of those kind of difficult deeds that have you like need to not get the queen's impatience above two or you're only doing reputation like that one you might want to drop down for, but like. The way that those deeds are organized, you won't actually have those things like pop out at you until you start getting to a point where you can be like, oh, now I get it. Yeah, it's it's definitely something where right now, like the whole rain punk thing feels like maybe one layer of complexity too many, but also I'm still having a ton of fun with this game and I want to keep playing it for a long time. And I can definitely see that at some point down the line. I might want to introduce more complexity because I've like figured out Pioneer. Yeah. Um, So I'm glad that it's there if I want to add that in eventually. Uh, Luke, I don't know if you've gotten to that point yet. No, I haven't. I, but for me, it's sort of more like I've been kept from it. It's not something that I would (laughs) willingly upgrade to. It's something I, I like can't access yet so it's nice it's nice for me to have that there on the shelf for like but i'm very similar to you i'm i'm i think the game is is close to like systemic perfection as it is i don't don't know if i'd want to add another layer of complexity on top of it but i'm 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 glad to know that the rain water and rain punk systems exist there later sort of if i do somehow master the sort of current stuff that i'm that's so good about it i can get that off the shelf and Try that later if my game ever gets patched or fixed so that I can get that far in the first place. (laughs) Well, now that we've talked about it on Three Moves Ahead, the number one strategy podcast in the universe, they have to, they they better give you a personal call about getting that bug fixed. They can can send me a physical copy of the game. (laughs) It's compensation. I wonder if it's a Windows 11 thing, just because I don't know a lot of people who use Windows 11, and I don't know a lot of people who. Yeah, I, I, to be crashes. fair, I, I got most of the crashes when like before 1.0, and so I just put it down to like, yeah. look, it's early access, whatever, this shit happens. But um, the fact it's continued after 1.0, yeah, I might need to look into it. But oh. again, not a huge deal because I'm here talking about how good it is. The game itself runs fine, so like apart from when it crashes, so it's all good. So another thing that they added in uh, within the past couple months, possibly for the 1.0, is that there's like a little house that you have in the smoldering city where some of the achievements will give you like new little stuff in the house. And you have an aunt there who's like a veteran of the same role you have as the Queen's Viceroy who will tell you little stories. And it's very strange because like the rest of this game doesn't really have characters 
in in this specific in this specific of a way. Like there are a few characters who will like um or a few people in the game who will pop up and give you a little bit of dialogue, but now you have an Aunt Lori who will tell you all these things about the way that the world works. And some of it is like a lore dump and some of it is like a, a kind of guiding new players into it. But it it has this whole like late 90s PC game vibe to it. Yeah, that it's, 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 yeah it's really jarring. The rest, the rest of the game has such a clean like i i sort of thought the game visually was a sort of very fun nod towards like what we used to do with old nes games where there would be basic visuals on screen and then the actual art for the game would flesh things out into more detail and so basically the 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 stuff you're looking at all the time looks like league of legends like it looks like a, a, a 10 15 year old moba but the actual character portraits that you're usually dealing with are, are great. Like the, the little portraits of the lizard men and the beavers and that, and, and those sort of pieces of art are far more detailed and, and stylized. And, and those are fantastic. And then, yeah, you get to the house and it's like, it's neither of those things. It's this completely yeah. like third thing that doesn't fit the other two things at all. And it's, it's narrative based, which doesn't fit the rest of the game at all. And like the way she's animated, doesn't fit the rest of the game either. Like it just feels like it's been completely bolted on, like not even by the same people because <laughs> it's there's nothing yeah, linking absolutely. this to the rest of the game. It's like a fan made, frequently asked questions guide. Like even the menu, yeah. even the way you work through. So like if you imagine you, you click into this house and it is very late nineties, sort of very Super Nintendo. There's a, a character portrait of of your of your aunt, and then down the bottom of the screen, there's you click through dialogue bubbles and options, and even they're different to the rest of the game. Like the way they're the font and the presentation, the animation of all that stuff is, yeah. I don't go in there very often because I find it quite like not upsetting, but it is quite jarring to go in there and be like, this is very strange. Yeah. It it also sort of goes along with the overall presentation of like when a new cycle ends and when something else starts and you, or when you're going into the smoldering city, it's just kind of a menu and like when you press end on your cycle, this is like the big deal. All of your settlements that you've worked so hard on are just suddenly wiped away and you see the rewards you get. There's not even like an animation. It just kind of zooms over to the smoldering city and everything gets dark and it makes a noise. Like it's it's just a very odd thing where like so much of this game feels like exactly right, even if it is, yeah, kind of a 10 or 15 year old MOBA or RTS vibe to to what the graphics are. But like, it all fits together, but then like you have this, the big moment is just kind of nothing happens or you click on it and the text says, congratulations, you're on the next year. And uh, yeah, that's, I don't know. I, I feel like I've, I've always felt uh, ever since the game came out um, or ever since the game added the cycles, which I think was fairly soon after the uh, early access came out uh, there. It just seemed like something was slightly off about ending the cycle and starting another one. Well, the, the other thing that I found really disappointing is that like, I assume that the buildings in the, the, uh, the city change when you upgrade them. Right. Like, but it's very, what? I think, I think what like, buildings? the, the ones when you like go to the smoldering city and you just uh-huh. see the, 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 the scene of the city with all the little different buildings in it. I'm pretty uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, when yeah. You, I'm pretty sure when you upgrade them, they change visually, but there's not like an animation for it. And when you click that upgrade button, 
you're on a menu that covers everything up. So like I can't see my you know yeah, towers I, getting bigger, which but even, even the way they're implemented, like they're of, just yeah. those yeah. buildings are just sitting on the grass. There's nothing yeah. like this they, they've built this narrative um sort of uh-huh. core to the game that sends you out and brings you back every time. That's cool. There's no sense of occasion to coming back or setting out because there's no like there's no yeah, it, grandeur or there's nothing anchoring you to this space it's like i'm spending 95 percent of my time in this very fully realized rts slash moba visual style of game that's 3d and actually you know i i'm it sounds like i'm talking shit about it but it 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 works like it is it is cute for what it is it works um and then you come back to this menu that i feel like i'm running through dosbox like it's it's everything ah. about it. It's just so no, like stripped back, I, and not and not in, not in a way that's cute or is like a homage to to old games either. It's just it's it's feels really janky and really yeah. sort of undercooked. Yeah. I think you were spot on that it feels like it was made by a different studio. Yeah, like everything around the smoldering city. Just yeah, it 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 feels like it's from a different game. I don't know what's going on there. Like you think there'd be at least this uh, the same isometric viewpoint and then these like a static custom representation of those buildings on what looks like the game map, but like a you know a fully realized metropolis version of of the game map with you know all stone roads and and large beautiful luxury houses in the queen's castle and you know something that that looks the same as the rest of the game that you're playing, not this completely alien um separate screen that kind of is the game's only real like it's not a it's not a shock it's not a downfall because it's it's you're not there for very long and it's doing what it needs to do and then you get back out there but like it would have been nice to get some kind of little reward or feeling of sanctuary or place from this thing that you're going back to all the time instead of it just being like such a a jarring experience so I think one of the easiest ways to say why it's why it feels so odd is that it's really easy to forget to upgrade things. Like you click on your deeds, there's a little red dot next to that. It says how many deeds you've accomplished. Great. You get a notification saying Aunt Lori has something new to tell you at your house. Cool. Uh, there's not actually like a notification or anything that says go buy your upgrades. These and this is like the main meta progression thing. Um, it's just. I I have I've like trained myself over a year or a year and a half of having the smoldering city there to remember okay after every mission I can go and upgrade something and going and figuring out what that is um but yeah it's 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 an odd thing and it's been an odd thing since they added it I think the initial version didn't have anything like that um that got added a few months into the early access and uh hasn't been like fleshed out animated made into a reward and uh it doesn't need to be like this is still a fantastic city builder and maybe it's better that it isn't in that your focus is still on actually building the cities but it is also easy to just kind of bypass the an aspect of the game that's theoretically like it's half of the theoretical game like you uh, you have the overall strategic aspect of it, and then you have the the city building aspect. It also might become more important as you get like daily missions, which is a thing that you unlock pretty late. Since I started this new campaign, I haven't even gotten to that point yet. Uh, but they are in there, and they have like specific challenges and stuff. That's that that could be a fun, a a more fun way to engage with kind of the meta game there. 
Luke, uh, despite your technical misgivings, uh, you you would still recommend against the storm. It sounds oh, like. Yeah, look, just like you guys, I think it's the the yeah. most impressive city builder um, I've played in a very, very, very long time. Um, just letting me do the the things that I love best about a city builder over and over again, and then throwing in, like, not just making it a roguelite, but making it a really exceptional roguelite on top of that is like, yeah, super impressed by this game. Can I, if you like any of those things that I've just described, or if you are a furry, or if you are a Red Wolf <laughs> fan, or any anything touching any Venn diagram from this game whatsoever, I like I'd recommend it. If you're, if you're like me and you're not a furry butt, and the butt is the uh, yeah, you're a fucking caps. furry. <laughs> um, Come on, I've seen you talk about werewolf. Listen, Therian. Okay, no, we're not going to get into the distinctions there. Uh, <laughs> Erwin, I believe you already recommended Against the Storm in, in Early Access, yeah. but you, I, no, so I'm assuming is, you continue to recommend Against the Storm. I think this is pretty clearly the strategy game of the year. Like, if we want to say Baldur's Gate's tactics makes it a contender, then sure, we can do that. But yeah, this is, mm. this is uh, in terms of a conventional strategy game, I think pretty easily the most exciting thing of the past couple of years. Uh, this is a game that I have played multiple new campaigns throughout early access pretty much every time anything has changed. Uh, I've basically it's it's done for me in City Builders what Darkest Dungeon did for tactics games. So, uh, yeah, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah, I'll I'll hold my thoughts uh, on what I think is the best strategy game of the year for our end of the year wrap up show. Um, but this is certainly top five, um, even if we include Baldur's Gate three as a strategy game, which yeah, well, yeah, we can have that discussion when we do the end of the year show. But um, yeah, it rules. I mean, it's just they have the gameplay dialed in so well on so many levels. It's it's all the good strategy things that you want a strategy game to like engage your brain you know, like all these gears that are like perfectly cut out to engage those parts of your brain and with 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 no clinking or clanking. It's it is a delight to play and I uh, highly recommend it. We, we've said they a bunch without actually mentioning that they is Aramite Games. Good yes. work, Aramite Games. Yeah, uh, that was my bad. I might I might edit the intro a little bit to make sure I because yeah. I, I usually have the Steam page pulled up. But for some reason this week I didn't. Yeah um yeah it's it's fantastic um i think if you're gonna play like one strategy game over your your holiday break uh you could certainly do a lot worse and it would be hard to do better than against the storm um and uh yeah i i'm sure we'll talk more about it when we go over what our strategy game of the year is um as the the world's authority <laughs> on the best strategy games of the year. Uh, I don't think we have any significant competition in that regard. Uh, <laughs> certainly not from uh, certain three hour commercials that, uh, you know, yeah. you may have caught parts of. Um, yeah. Uh, three Moves Ahead is host on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can find us there at idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. We're supported by listeners like you on Patreon. 
patreon.com slash 3ma where this month we'll be talking about ridley scott's napoleon at some point when we can get everyone's schedules to line up um we're on sort of still on twitter i guess (laughs) 3ma i'll post the episodes there that's pretty much all i use it for um at least for the 3ma account and uh blue sky 3ma.bsky.social uh Luke, uh, you talked a little bit about your new website at the beginning of the show, but do you want to uh, remind everybody how to find it? You can find me and some other lovely people at aftermath.site. We have subscriptions available for as low as $7 a month. Or for a 17% discount, you can pay $70 for an annual subscription and get access to all of our blogs, more of which will be about strategy games than are available at the moment. The only one I've written so far is about a game called Against the Storm, which I don't think you need to read now because we've done <laughs> an hour and 24 minutes on it here. But yeah, you can find me there. It's a good website. You should read it. Rowan, what's happening with movies right now? <sighs> movies isn't even the big thing, but yeah, the I also do a podcast called Total Massacre, which used to be an action movie podcast and is now a science fiction movie podcast. We are in the middle of December. Uh, we have done Screamers, and we just did Blade Runner when this came out. That should be going up tomorrow as we record this. Uh, and we're going to be doing Paycheck soon, and then heading into a request month, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it stars me and Carly Veloci and Kev Kozer are now the three main panelists, and a rotating cast of literally dozens who also show up. Uh, the other big thing I'm doing is I am attempting to this week, hopefully, maybe, probably, uh, be launching a video game consultancy service. Uh, I have a website name picked out. It's called Rowan.Monster. As I am saying this, I don't have the website actually up. Uh, so hopefully that'll be up by then. And if not, you can consider that a promise. Uh, but yeah, I will be doing mock reviews, uh, chatting with the developers, uh like simultaneous plays or you can watch me play a game, see how I engage with it, uh, sensitivity reading, that kind of thing. But mock reviews are the big thing. Uh, so yeah, look me up doing that, launching that soon, hopefully alongside a major article on a website near us, but we'll we'll see if my writing actually allows that to happen. Uh, so yeah, I think that's the Rowan report. All right, well... We'll be back uh, hopefully next week with, I believe, Last Train Home will be our last, potentially our last uh, episode about a specific game of uh, 2023. But I think we'll also try to do maybe a lightning round on the end of year show of some of the ones that we talked about a lot that didn't end up becoming an episode or we can save some of them for January. Uh, Yeah. So uh, for Luke and for Rowan, this is Len saying good night.